Hello and welcome to Talking General Practice, the podcast from GP Online. I'm Emma Bauer, the editor of GP Online. Today on the podcast, I'm joined by our deputy news editor, Nick Bostock, and senior news reporter, Kimberly Hackett, to talk about some of the latest news affecting general practice. Coming up, we're talking about GP funding after analysis by the Liberal Democrats showed a real terms fall in practice funding, and after government figures showed the share of NHS funding going to primary care has fallen to an eight-year low. We're talking about problems at the primary care interface, what that actually means and how it is wasting millions of GP appointments every year. And we're talking about measles and MMR vaccine uptake after the UK Health Security Agency last week declared a national incident, warning there's a growing public health risk as the number of measles cases rises. Our good news story this week is about the friends and family test. Before we start, let's say a quick hello to Nick. Hello. And also, let's introduce GP Online's senior reporter, Kimberly. Hi, Kimberly. Hello, everyone. Really pleased to be here. Kimberly joined the GP Online team about three months ago, and so this is her podcast debut. So, welcome to Talking General Practice. We'll be talking to Kimberly in a bit about one of the stories she's been working on over the past couple of weeks. But first up, Nick, let's talk about something you've been looking at money, in particular, general practice funding in England. This week, you wrote a story about some new analysis on GP funding that the Liberal Democrats have done. What did that data show? This analysis was commissioned by the Liberal Democrats and carried out by researchers in the House of Commons Library. They looked at figures on NHS payments to GP practices. This is data that's published annually by NHS Digital. And the analysis they did compares total funding as well as funding per patient across a four-year period from 2018-19 to 2022-23, and then looks at whether funding has kept pace with inflation. And the main finding, essentially, was that it hasn't come close to matching inflation. Total funding for GP practices in 2022-23 was £350 million short in real terms of the level that practices received in total four years earlier. So looking at per patient funding, the analysis shows that in real terms, so once inflation is taken into account, that the amount of funding per patient GP practices received in 2022-23 was £12 lower than in 2018-19. And it found that at the start of the four-year period, GP practices receiving £155 per patient And if that had kept pace with inflation, by 2022-23, it would have risen to £177. But in fact, it only rose to £165, so well short of the level needed to even match inflation, let alone actually provide any extra funding. And just to put this in context, this evidence of falling real-terms funding comes at a time when GP practices are delivering more appointments than ever, with a GP workforce that's significantly smaller than it was a decade or so ago. So as the Lib Dems put it, the government has slashed funding at a time of rising demand. Yeah, I mean, the Department of Health and Social Care actually disputed the fact that GP funding had fallen, didn't it? It has a slightly different take on how things have gone over the past four years. What did it have to say about all of this? There's a bit of the um, alternative facts about this, but the Department of Health suggested the idea that GP funding has gone down was wrong and that, in fact, it's increased in in real terms. Um, But but the government response didn't actually address the figures in the Liberal Democrat analysis at all. The government also pointed to a set of figures across a slightly different period in its response. So it's basically comparing apples and pears. The Lib Dem stats were, as I mentioned, based on annual figures on payments to GP practices, which 
don't include the bulk of funding for primary care networks, PCMs. But the government chose instead to look at a set of figures that do include PCM funding. So it's funding that, that often has nothing to do with core GP services, such as the salaries of staff running PCMs, as well as other funding streams that include central IT funding, some training costs and spending on out-of-hours GP services, for example. The government is right that the figures it pointed to show an increase in spending, and the Lib Dem analysis accurately shows a decrease. But the, the question is, which set of stats more accurately reflect the picture for GP practices on the front line? And I think most practices will feel their situation aligns a bit more closely with the idea of finances tightening rather than the other way around. Yeah, I think you're probably right about that. The Liberal Democrats figures also had a regional breakdown. What did that show? I mean, are some areas of England faring worse in terms of falling GP funding than others? I imagine that is the case. Yeah, no, there's some significant regional variation. According to the Lib Dem analysis, some ICB areas have seen funding per patient drop by as much as £28 in real terms over the four years to 2022-23. So that's compared to the £12 nationally. Um, About 10 ICB areas saw funding drop by £15 or more per patient in real terms over the four-year period. And only two areas saw increases in per patient funding of any level. And in both of those cases, it was actually by relatively small amounts. In some cases, significant real terms drops in GP funding were compounded by large increases in registered patients as well, because the the total number of patients registered with GP practices, something we talked about fairly regularly, I think, uh, has also risen fairly fast in recent years. You did quite a useful map on the website, if anyone wants to look at that, which shows exactly how those figures break down across England and which areas are experiencing quite large rises in patient populations as well. But those figures from the Liberal Democrats, they came after data published by the government the week before showed that the share of NHS funding going to general practice had fallen to its lowest level in eight years, which you also wrote about. Where did that data come from and what did it actually show? These figures were published by the government in response to a question in Parliament, and they show that in the current financial year, the proportion of NHS funding spent on primary medical care is budgeted to fall to 8.4%, and that's a smaller share than in any of the previous eight years. Going back to 2015-16, that's the start of the eight-year period covered in this set of statistics, the share of funding spent on primary care was 8.8%. And it peaked at 9.2% in 2019-20. That's when there was a spike in in investment under the five-year GP contract deal that began at that time. Finalised figures on spending are available up to 2021-22. And in that year, it had fallen to 8.6%, so down from the 8.8% at the start of the eight-year period. And for the next couple of years, 2022-23 and the current financial year, The figures aren't final, but spending was budgeted to fall to 8.5% and then to the current 8.4%. That's a really significant dip under the five-year GP contract deal in the total proportion of NHS funding that goes to primary care. As we've said, that comes at a time when workload is really, really high. It is quite significant, isn't it? Because we talked about this quite a lot and GP representative bodies are always keen to make this point that 
that tiny proportion of the NHS budget, that's a very small proportion when given that a very significant proportion of patient contacts actually happen in primary care. So, I mean, there's a real mismatch there. But obviously, taken all together, both of these things, the Liberal Democrats figures, those figures you've just talked about there, obviously, this is all a real concern about the financial viability of general practice. And we've talked on the podcast before, you know, very recently about falling partner income and financial worries. And this all just adds to that bleak picture. What have GP representatives had to say about all of this? The RCGP response to both of these sets of figures, the ones on the share of NHS funding general practice receives and on the, the falling real terms income, are actually really similar. They warn that driving down funding for general practice makes absolutely no sense. One figure the college has become fond of quoting lately comes from a report published at the end of last summer by the NHS Confederation. And that said that for every £1 invested in primary or community care, there's up to a £14 return back to the national economy. So investment in general practice literally generates tens of billions of pounds more for the wider economy, according to that analysis. So just on that basis, reducing funding for general practice makes no sense, as the college says. It also makes no sense if you look at the fact that numbers of patients and appointments are rising in general practice. Or if you look at the evidence we've reported on recently around GP practice being unable to afford GPs, especially at a time when the government says it wants to grow the GP workforce. So the case for proper funding for general practice is clear and it it just needs a small matter of a government to come along and deliver that. Moving on, let's talk about the primary care interface. For those listening who don't know what the primary care interface is, what we're basically talking about here is the interface between GP practices and other parts of the NHS, such as hospitals, community services, mental health organisations, and local authorities, for example. We've talked on the podcast before several times about inappropriate transfer of work from hospitals in particular to GP practices. So this is where tasks or administrative duties that should be carried out by hospitals get passed on to GPs or practice staff. For example, practice being told to re-refer a patient to another specialty in the hospital rather than the specialty they've been sent to in the first place actually doing it. Or GPs sent letters from hospitals telling them to provide a fit note to sign a patient off work or hospitals expecting GPs to pass on test results. There are a plethora of examples that all add to the work of practices and which practices are not paid for. And while hospitals are probably the biggest culprit, very similar issues can occur with other parts of the NHS as well. So this has been going on for quite a long time now, but it's a problem that's become significantly worse since the pandemic as hospitals contend with massive waiting lists and are clearly trying to clear out as much work as they possibly can. And there's been various attempts to address this problem over the years, clauses in standard hospital contracts, and there was mention of this in the primary care access recovery plan. But so far, it seems little has made progress on this. So, Kimberly, you've been looking at this for GP Online, and last week you wrote a story about a report that looked into this issue in more detail. So what was this report about and what was it looking at? So GPs in Humberside had fed back to its LMC that practices were often receiving instructions to undertake contractual work of secondary care for things such as onward referrals, arranging tests and investigations and issuing medications. 
Humberside LMC wanted to investigate how serious this issue was across the region, so it surveyed its practices and produced a report with its findings. As you mentioned, when we talk about the interface with primary care, we're usually talking about issues between GPs and hospitals. But Humberside LMC also looked at the interface with other parts of the healthcare system, such as local authorities, community healthcare providers, and so on. The report looked at how much time GPs were spending on tackling interface problems, as well as the impact on patients. And the report also estimates how much of these problems are costing the NHS as a whole. What exactly were the findings from that survey? Well, some GPs warned that as much as 30 to 40% of their working day was spent directly or indirectly on tackling interface problems. And it found that GPs typically spend at least 28 minutes of their day on resolving these issues. Across Humberside, the time lost on tackling these problems is equivalent to nearly 100,000 GP appointments a year wasted. And the LMC estimates this costs the area more than £4 million a year. Now, if we look at this on a national scale, the figures suggest 6 million appointments a year, 12% of the extra 50 million appointments in general practice promised by the government, worth more than £200 million, could be saved by tackling interface issues. And the kind of interface issues GPs in Humberside reported include communication, such as patients not being made aware of test results, Then there is work being transferred from hospitals, for example, practices being asked to carry out tests on behalf of hospitals. And then we have issues around inappropriate rejections of referrals and extra work linked to advice and guidance. Communication issues were the most common, but all of these issues affected 7 out of 10 or more respondents. Now, it is important to highlight that the survey revealed that although hospitals were the single biggest source of interface problems that drained clinical time, around two thirds of interface problems relate to other organisations, such as community and mental health providers. Yeah, I mean, that's a really important point you make there, because the focus of discussion around this is often very much about hospitals. For example, I mentioned the access recovery plan there earlier. I mean, all of the measures mentioned in that were aimed at hospitals and the primary secondary care interface. But it's clearly a major issue from other local providers as well. And ICBs will have to get to grips with that alongside the hospital issue if they're going to help cut practice workload. So obviously, this is a massive problem for most practices, though, not just those in Humberside. I mean, the amount of GPs I've spoken to who mentioned this as a real bone of contention. But did Humberside LMC make any suggestions about what needs to happen to tackle the problem? What have they said their ICB should be doing, for example? Yes, so Humberside LMC Chief Executive Medical Director, Dr Zoe Norris, called for a renewed focus at system-wide level to tackle the interface burden with action to eliminate the common interface problems, such as the communication issue I discussed earlier on. The LMC believes this can be done by pushing for an ICB-level interface key performance indicator to drive improvements in how organisations interact with each other. An NHS Humber and North Yorkshire ICB spokesperson told GP Online it welcomes the report and that some work is already being carried out to address interface problems between acute providers and primary care. Next up, let's look at measles. Last week, the UK Health Security Agency declared a national incident over fears that measles outbreaks could spread and called for a concerted effort to boost uptake of the MMR jab. We'll come on to talk about vaccines in a minute, but Nick, first of all, what exactly does a UKHSA national incident mean and what do we know about the current situations with measles infections? 
In terms of the current situation, there's been quite a big rise in suspected measles cases over the past year or so. The West Midlands in particular is facing a significant outbreak. And the UKHSA says there's a real risk that that could spread, especially in areas with low vaccination rates. So figures from the UKHSA show that in 2023, there were 1,603 suspected measles cases. And that's more than double the number from the previous year. But to put that in context, in the West Midlands, just since last October, there have been 216 confirmed cases and 103 probable cases. Um, The vast majority of those, around 80%, have been in Birmingham. About 10% have been picked up in Coventry. Most of these cases are in children aged under 10 years old, although there are some cases in older age groups as well. The UKHSA actually warned last summer that outbreaks were possible because of low vaccination rates. And as you said, there's now this push to drive up rates of MMR vaccination. The fact that the UKHSA has declared a national incident is a bit like stepping up alert levels. It says putting this label on the measles outbreak is a signal internally within the agency that there's a growing public health risk. And it basically frees up some resources to focus on trying to limit the spread of measles and offer support to areas that are at particular risk. Yeah, so you mentioned MMR vaccination uptake, and this week NHS England has announced further steps to try and help drive up vaccination levels. And parents of children aged between 6 and 11 who've missed one or both of the jabs will be contacted and encouraged to make an appointment with their GP practice. That's across England. And just over a million people aged between 11 and 25 in London and the West Midlands will also be contacted and encouraged to make an appointment if they're not fully vaccinated. NHS England says that more than 3.4 million children under the age of 16 have not had one or both of their MMR jabs, which leaves them at risk of infection. You know, that is quite a staggering number and obviously means there is a real risk of the virus spreading and possibly spreading quite quickly. Data for 2022-23 shows that two-dose MMR coverage in children aged five, so that's children who are fully vaccinated at the age of five, had fallen to its lowest level since 2010. And that's something we wrote about last year. So that data shows that the proportion of children aged five who are fully vaccinated is now just 84.5%, which is well below the World Health Organization's recommended target of 95%. And we know there are parts of the country where vaccination is far lower. Obviously, the West Midlands is one area of concern, but also London is a real worry. The UKHSA did a risk assessment of the possibility of a measles outbreak last year and London was highlighted in that report as a particular area of concern. That assessment found in some parts of the capital, coverage of the first MMR dose at two years is as low as 69.5%. And the UKHSA at that time warned that unless vaccination rates in London improved, the capital could be facing an outbreak involving between 40,000 and 160,000 people. So these are really big numbers. And it's obviously outbreaks on that scale that will be really worrying health officials right now. And NHS England is really stressing the fact that measles is not a minor condition. One in five children who get measles will need to be admitted to hospital for treatment. Actually, interesting, the UK isn't the only country in Europe facing this challenge. Um, this week, the World Health Organization said there'd been a 30-fold increase in measles cases in Europe in the last year. There were more than 30,000 measles cases across Europe between January and October 2023, compared with just 941 in the whole of 2022. So it's a massive increase. Two in five of those cases were in children under the age of four, 
and one in five were in people over the age of 20. There were also 21,000 hospitalisations last year for measles and five measles-related deaths in Europe. So it's obviously a global public health issue as well. And obviously the WHO is also encouraging more people to get vaccinated. They seem to blame lower vaccination levels primarily on the pandemic and the fact that people weren't vaccinated during the pandemic. The WHO also points to more people travelling abroad after the pandemic, which it says is increasing the risk of cross-border disease transmission and spread within particular communities. And in fact, that's something the UK HSA also highlighted in that risk assessment that I mentioned earlier. There's also been some new guidance on infection control, hasn't there? Yeah, that's right. So basically, it's a return to PPE in general practice. Healthcare and the rest of the NHS healthcare professionals have been told they should be wearing PPE if they're seeing any confirmed or suspected cases of measles. Practices have also been advised to have processes in place if they need to see anyone face to face who may have measles, such as making sure they're taken straight into a consulting room and there's no hanging about in the waiting room. There's also some new guidance about whether staff, if staff are exposed to a suspected case of measles, basically if they haven't been wearing PPE, the advice is that they'll need to take a quite a big chunk of time off work to prevent further infection and there's also some advice and guidance in there about possible prophylaxis for any at-risk patients who've been exposed to measles and and obviously measles can be very very serious for certain groups of patients so it's really clear that this is something NHS England is taking very seriously as as well as the UK HSA. Just worth mentioning I suppose as well that GP practices in England have actually been involved in an MMR catch-up campaign since last November so you know since then they will have been contacting parents of children who've missed one or both vaccines and trying to get them to come in to the surgery for their jab. We've just got time for our regular good news slot, which this week is about the friends and family test. For those people who don't know, the friends and family test is a feedback tool used in NHS services in England that asks people about their experiences of using that particular service following an appointment. Last week, NHS England published details of results from November 2023. And they show that just over three quarters of a million people provided a response to the test in that month following an appointment in general practice. Of those, 91% were positive and just 4% were negative. Given the intense pressure that GP practices are under at the minute, I think it's worth highlighting this and remembering that the vast majority of people really value the care that they receive from their practice and think GPs and other staff in the practice are doing a really good job. Well, that's it for this week. Thanks for listening and thanks to Nick and Kimberly. If you're enjoying the podcast, please do give us a rating and leave a review. We'd really appreciate it. I'll be back next week when I'm speaking to Robin Clark from the Institute of General Practice Management about the current challenges facing GP practice managers and how we can cut bureaucracy in general practice. So please do join me then. In the meantime, don't forget you can keep up to date with all the latest news affecting primary care and access a wealth of other resources on our website at gponline.com. 